Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. This is, um, this is a difficult story. This is a really intriguing story. We read this passage and we think, hey, it's the Lord's Supper. This is the time when Jesus sat down with his Passover meal and he was doing something significant about his life and he was teaching the disciples. And true, he was. But there's this little story sandwiched with the Passover meal about Judas and about the rest of the disciples. And that's the one we want to focus on a little bit this morning. This story that we just read is a combination of private and public conversations and private and public events. It kind of alternates itself. Private event with Judas. Public event with Jesus and the disciples. Private conversation between Judas and Jesus. Public conversation with Jesus and the rest of the disciples. Jesus is revealing his death and resurrection again to the disciples. And he draws them to the Passover meal to help them understand what is going to happen in the coming two days. He then confronts their sin. This is supposed to be a time of celebration. This meal is a meal where they gather together and they celebrate the goodness of God and what God has done in their life corporately as a nation and individually as they partake. But Jesus interrupts this very special meal with, one of you is going to betray me. And so he takes this celebratory meal and makes it very personal as he confronts their sin and then continues to explain the only hope to fix the sin problem in their life is through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's where he ties in the Passover meal for their personal application. This story includes all of the 12 disciples, but it focuses specifically on two, Judas and Peter. And so we're going to focus on them and we're going to see what we can learn about that in terms of our relationship to Jesus and our relationship with one another. Um, Oh, it's in my pocket. Okay, here we go. Um, The first thing that we need to know, there are no secret sins and there are no surprise sins. There are no secret sins, and there are no surprise sins, okay? Um, In this story, Judas was off by himself, right? He snuck away from the twelve. Maybe he said, I'm going to go get some vegetables. Maybe he said, I need to go water the donkeys. I don't know what he said, but he snuck away from the the twelve disciples and Jesus, and he proceeded to meet with the leaders of the day, and sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price you would buy a slave for in that day. So he made this arrangement in secret. He made secret plans to betray the Lord. He made secret plans to get paid 30 pieces of silver. And then the portion of Scripture that we didn't read, but it continues from, um, from uh, the, the Gospel that we read this morning, um, tells the story about Peter, right? And it says this, after, after um, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it says, When they sang a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples echoed that. So we've got this story about Judas, who in secret trying to betray the Lord, right? And we've got the story about Peter, who can't pull the wool over the Lord's eyes. Peter was passionate, certain he would never betray the Lord in the future. But God's sovereign knowledge of our hearts lays bare our past, our present, and our future. Okay? There is nothing, and I repeat, there is nothing that we can hide from the eyes of the Lord. There are no secret sins, and there are no surprise sins before the Lord. There are no intentions, desires, words, deeds, thoughts, actions, inactions, anything that can be hidden from the Lord. Now, um, there are no moments that we can surprise Him. There will never be a moment when you do something and God stands back and goes, I never saw that coming. I had no idea they were capable of that. I did not know that person knew that word. I had no idea that they were going to be there and do that. That will never happen. There is no secret sin that we can keep back from God. And there is no way that we can surprise God with our sin and Him go, oops, I forgot to cover that one because I didn't know it was coming. God knows everything, past, present, and future. Children, let me speak to you guys for just a moment. Okay? When your parents are not in the room and you think that you can get away with something because they do not see you, now, you're going to say, I never do that. It's okay. I've done that. We've all done that. We're just going to be honest here, okay? When you are alone in your room or in the kitchen or somewhere in your house and your parents have said, don't do X, Y, or Z, but you think you can do it because they're not there, you can do it because they're not there, but even though your parents don't see it, God sees it, and that's still a sin, okay? So there is nothing you can keep from God. God sees everything you do and wants you always to choose obedience and righteousness and holiness. Parents, the same goes for you. There is nothing you can do, even though no one else sees it, that is hidden from the eyes of God. And we think, we grow up and think that because we have our own lives and we're in charge, that when we do something privately, that nobody else knows about it, that it's okay because God and me have an arrangement. There are no secret sins before God. We all have free will. We can do as we please, but God is all-knowing, all-present, all-wise, and in His sovereignty, He knows our paths. Okay? We cannot bury evidence before God like we can bury it in front of each other. I can hide my sins from any one of you. And you would go, wow, he is the holiest pastor. Now, thankfully, I don't. 
and you're all like, that's just an average guy. I hope that's what you think, because I'm an average guy who loves Jesus and strives to do my best with the Lord. But I could hide sins before you, and you might never know my deepest, deepest, darkest intentions, but I can't hide them from God. You will never be able to hide your sin from your Savior. And the longer you try, the further you will get from God. The more you bury your sin in front of God, the further your hearts get from Him. Think about Adam and Eve, right? He gave them one rule. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there was nothing wrong with the fruit. Okay, The fruit was fine. It was the act of disobedience that was the sin. And when they sinned, what happened? Where did they go? Anybody? Where did Adam and Eve hide? In the garden. They hid in the bushes, right? So they dove into a bush. They suddenly realized, I'm naked, I'm embarrassed, I've sinned. The first thing that they did was dive into some bushes to hide. Now let me ask you, who made the bushes? God. Who made Adam and Eve? Do you think that creation can hide from the one who created it? No, okay? The children get this very simple lesson. This is good. God made the bushes. God made Adam and Eve. You cannot hide from the maker of your soul. Psalm 69 says this, O God, it is you who knows my sin, and my wrongdoings are not hidden from you. Right? Psalm 44, God will always discover your sin, for he knows the secrets of your hearts. I don't like that verse. Because it means he will always discover my sin, even when I don't want him to. Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on both the evil and the good. So here's the good news. He sees everything you do. The things that you shouldn't be doing, he sees them. But he also sees the good things that you do, the times that you do things that no one else sees, the acts of service and the prayers of supplication and intercession, he sees and hears those things too. That's great. He's not just the guy who's looking for you to do the wrong thing so he can pounce. He's the God who loves you and wants to draw you closer to him. There are no secret sins or surprise sins. Here's the next thing we need to know. Our willing participation in sin grieves Jesus. Our willing participation in sin grieves Jesus. Sin, the definition, is a willful transgression of the known law of God. So you sin against God when you willingly, disobediently go against something that you know God wants you or doesn't want you to do. God doesn't want you to eat the fruit, you eat the fruit. God wants you to stay put, you go. And if you know that there's something that he wants you to do and you don't do it, that's sinful. A willful transgression of the known law of God. Willing participation in sin grieves Jesus. See, God is angry at sin. He doesn't like sin. But he's grieved over the sinner. And there's a difference. God is angry at sin, but he's grieved over the sinner. Sin separates God's creation from Him. It separates His children from Him. And so, sin receives wrath, and God gives grace to His children. That's good news for all of us sinners. Can I get an amen? Amen, right? So, as a good Father created us to walk in fellowship 
with him and love him and obey him, it's for our own good that he created us to have relationship with him. But when we sin, we break relationship with God, we break fellowship with God, and it hurts us and others and our relationship with God. And this grieves him. My daughter's uh, Bible phrases it like this. When Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't just break relationship with God, it broke God's heart. And now everything in the world would begin to unravel because of sin. Because of God's broken heart, things start to decay, right? We stub our toe, it hurts. We get a cold and it doesn't feel good in our head. Hearts are broken. Relationships are broken. And it's the continual decay of the world because of sin. But God didn't want to leave us that way. It grieved God that we sin. He is not the kind of God that sits up there going, my eyes are roaming back and forth to find the evil people that sin so that I can crush them and wipe them off of the face of the planet forever. God is up in heaven going, my eyes are roaming back and forth and I see their sin and it breaks my heart and I have to do something about it so that I can restore them back to relationship with me and we can have fellowship again like it should have been in the garden in the first place. This is what God's heart says about sin. In Isaiah 53, he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why was Jesus acquainted with grief? Because he bore the weight of the entire sin debt of all of the world for all of time. Luke 18 puts it like this. When Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He cried, Jesus cried when he saw Jerusalem because of the amount of sin that was in that city. And then Matthew 9 puts it like this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion, not anger. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. He saw people separated from God and they were like sheep without a shepherd running amok and getting stuck in places and flipping upside down and not being able to get back to where they were supposed to go and in danger from wolves. And he didn't get angry at them. He had compassion on them. He entered into their world and their life and their very thoughts and minds as he ministered to them. Um, our willing participation in sin grieves Jesus. Next thing we need to know. Jesus does not push you away. He draws you near. His grief over our sin does not cause Him to push us away. Right? But it causes us to draw Him near. Um, Adam and Eve defaulted to running. Right? They sinned, they ran, and they dove into a bush. Judas, what did he do when he sinned? After he betrayed Jesus, he took off. Right? Peter and the rest of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did they do? They ran. We default to running and hiding in our own lives too. We sin. We step out of church fellowship for a while because we're embarrassed or we feel awkward about it. We don't go to Bible study. We stop reading our Bible. We don't pray as much because we want to put distance between ourselves and the one who we sinned against. But that's not God's intent for our lives. Though we in our sin are hurting God, He says, I want to draw you closer even as you're hurting me. Let me ask you a question. 
If there is someone in your life who, in word and deed and everything else, pulls the proverbial dagger on you every time they see you, what is your response to that person? Keep your distance, right? I'm going to avoid situations where those daggers are coming at me because it hurts you. We are the ones with the daggers and our sin is what causes us to hurt God's heart. But God says, not keep a distance from me, but I will welcome you as your sin hurts me. And I will bring you close into my fold and I will absorb the pain and the hurt and the separation and the sorrow and I will die for that so that I can make you blameless and holy. In his grief, he is willing to endure the pain of our sin so that we can be made in right relationship with God again. In the garden, God, knowing full well Adam and Eve's sins and the consequences of their sins, didn't keep Adam and Eve at a distance, did he? He went searching for them. He sought them out. He called for them by name. Not because he didn't know where they were, okay? But because he was asking them, will you join me back in fellowship? He was extending that hand of Adam and Eve, where are you? Please take my hand and come out. He knows where they are. He wants them to participate willingly with him like they willingly participated in sin. It's a choice we must make. God did that for Israel too. His chosen people at Passover. Okay? Um, they were enslaved in Egypt, right? The nation of Israel. million or two people. And they were enslaved because they'd made sinful choices in their past as a nation. And they were enslaved to another nation and it wasn't good for them. But on a night, specifically one night, God said, I am going to free you from slavery and I'm going to do it in a miraculous and wonderful way. I'm going to send the angel of death over the country. And the firstborn male in every home will die except the homes that paint their doorpost with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Those doorposts will represent a house that will be passed over. So the angel of death came through Egypt that night and all of the homes with the blood of the doorpost was passed over. Hence the name Passover, okay? God's judgment passed over those homes because the lamb died, not the firstborn son except the homes in Egypt where there was no blood over the doorpost, and a great cry came out because the firstborn son in every home, including cattle and sheep and everything, firstborn died. And the cry was so great, Egypt said, take your people, God. I don't want them anymore. See, here's the thing. God provided a way out of them for slavery through the death of a lamb. A lamb that was sacrificed publicly and the blood was applied to the door publicly. Scripture tells us there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. There can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Now, when Jesus sat down in the passage that we read this morning, and he sat down with his disciples, he was inviting sinners to share a meal with him. He was drawing them close. Even though he was grieved over the sin... Judas was at the table. Imagine you were Jesus and you knew that Judas had already arranged to betray you. 
and that in just a few short hours you would be taken into custody, and a few short hours after that you would be flogged to the point of unrecognizability. And then, you know, short while after that you were forced to carry your heavy cross up a hill, and a little bit after that you are nailed to that cross because Judas is going to betray you. Do you invite that man to your dinner party? Right? I wouldn't. That'd be difficult. That's an honest answer right there. But Jesus did. Jesus said, the man who's going to betray me, I'm going to offer my hand and say, would Judas please come and fellowship with me? Please don't do this. I'm going to draw you close so that by any means there might be some repentance here. His grief over our sin causes him to act on our behalf at His expense. His grief over our sin causes us to act on our behalf at His expense. He pulled the disciples together and He said, I am going to become the sacrificial lamb for the Passover of your soul. I am going to be the one that dies for your sins so that God's wrath will pass over you and you will receive grace and forgiveness And I will die instead of you. I will be separated from God instead of you. I will endure the punishment instead of you. And you will have hope and life and peace. He was going to become the sacrificial lamb for the entire world. Not just Israel. He was buying the entire world, past, present, and future people, out of slavery from sin... Just like the sacrificial lamb bought bought Israel from slavery from Egypt. This is why John the Baptist said, when he was baptizing Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This isn't a new thing that Jesus is doing here. From the very first moments of Jesus' ministry, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And this is why Jesus in the passage we read today said, This is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Passover Lamb, the blood of Jesus, must be applied to our hearts, the doorpost of our own heart, right? Not just, we don't paint it on our house anymore. That doesn't work. It's not a household door painting. It's a we must recognize Jesus died for my secret sins. Jesus died for my sins. Not somebody else's sins, not sins in general. This must become a personal thing, a personal application. You must acknowledge before the Lord your personal private sins and then confess them with your mouth and heart. Romans 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, justified meaning just as if you've never sinned, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's twofold thing here. You must acknowledge your sins... And confess them. Believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins. And repent. Meaning, do a 180 and never do those things again. God will help you live that way. This is both a private in your heart and public with your voice kind of salvation. For there was a private and public aspect 
for you to need salvation. Your private sin and the public death of Jesus. Okay? Here's the next thing that we need to recognize. And if you only remember one thing from today's message, this is what I want you to remember. Jesus died publicly for what you did privately. Jesus died publicly for what you did privately. It doesn't matter if anybody else saw it. Jesus saw it. And he died publicly, shamefully, humiliatingly, painfully, and it took a while, on the cross, publicly, for what you did privately. It boils down to this. Jesus, knowing that you have sinned and that you will sin, and that your sin separates you from a holy and blameless, sinless, perfect, righteous, just God, Jesus willingly stood up for you, willingly stood up for you, and said, I will take that separation and punishment and wrath. I will die so that you can live. And he died publicly to enter into a new covenant with the world, bridging the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And this is what the communion meal that we take represents. This is what we are saying when we take the little cup of juice and the little wafer. We are saying publicly that we recognize that God did that for us. In the communion meal, just like when Jesus had Passover with his 12 disciples, he was inviting sinners to the table, and every sinner is invited to the table to partake of the new covenant that offers forgiveness. Nothing excludes you from this covenant. All you got to do is willingly come participate. It is one that forgives our sin and gives us hope. And he instituted the meal with his disciples. And then he commanded his disciples and everyone after them to continue to partake in this meal as a means of grace for our life so that we can experience and remember and embrace the salvation that we were given, which cost us so much. Right? This covenant meal is four things, okay? And I don't know that I've actually ever taught on the communion before so explicitly. We teach about it in the basics class, and these are the four things that I teach in the basics class about communion. Communion is a meal of four things. It is a meal, firstly, of remembrance, okay? I'm going to flip to my scripture here. Communion is a meal of remembrance, We remember what Christ did for our souls. Okay? Communion is a meal of remembrance, and it's a meal of proclamation. We make a statement of our faith publicly. We aren't taking this in secret. We're doing it in front of other people, which means we are remembering what God did for us, and we are publicly saying, I believe this. It's also a meal of examination because before we partake it, we examine our hearts and we remember our sin and we go, wow, I really do need this salvation that Jesus is talking about because he died publicly for what I did privately. And we examine our hearts before we come to the table, not because God doesn't want sinners at the table, he does, but because he doesn't want us to come to the table like this is snack that we have while we watch TV. This is a special kind of meal. It's not chips and a drink. Okay. Lastly, it's a meal of fellowship in which we show that we are part of the body of Christ. Now, I want to read some scriptures so that you do not think that it is just me saying these things. 
1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. And listen for remembrance, proclamation, and examination. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is mine body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often, and as you drink it, drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of Jesus. So let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning their own body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. Right? You don't come and partake in this meal and say, I'm still going to willy-nilly sin whenever I feel like it. Hebrews says that's trampling on the blood of Jesus. God doesn't like that. But sinners can come to the table in repentance and say, I don't want to live like that anymore. And I need God to help me with that. And I know that God's covenant says I can be forgiven. And so I want to be forgiven and have hope that He can help me. That's when we can come to the meal. How about fellowship? 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Jesus? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. And though we are many, there is one body. And we partake as one before one God. Does that make sense? When we partake in the body and the blood of Jesus in the communion meal, we are saying, we remember that he died for our sins, the secret ones, the ones that we think maybe he doesn't know about. It means we are proclaiming publicly, I believe he did that for me. It means that we have examined our hearts and realized we have sin. And we need God's help to live a life that is holy and pleasing to him. And partaking in the meal of remembrance gives us this special connection with Him because He did it and told us to do it. And when we partake in it, He is there with us sharing that meal because we have fellowship with the body of Christ. Not just this body, but the actual Jesus Christ who died for our sins joins us when we partake these elements. They do not become the body and the blood of Jesus. They remain juice and a wafer. But something supernatural happens when we submit ourselves to God and it acts as a means of grace which we feel a connection with God we might not otherwise feel with any other snack because this isn't a snack. This is the body and the blood of Jesus. Today we're going to partake communion and as we do, maybe we just follow along with, um, with what this is. A meal of remembrance taking some time to reflect on remembering what Jesus has forgiven you of. And being willing to publicly proclaim it, not just here, but out and about. And then saying, well, maybe God, I've got some own sins in my heart and my life right now that I thought were secret, but maybe you actually know about. And if you know about them, 
you've already died for them, but if I've not brought them before you willingly, like I willingly participated in them, then there's a gap between you and me. Maybe my heart needs to be examined this morning so that I can have fellowship with you and proclaim your goodness in my life and heart. So these elements are going to be set up here. We're going to have a time of reflection and worship and participation in the meal that is centuries old, right? Even more than that. Because God started it in Israel to prepare a people ready for the Passover meal so that when Jesus brought it into effect, we would recognize it for what it was. The salvation and hope that we have through Jesus. So why don't we pray? And there's going to be a song rolling on the screen. Use that time to pray, to examine, to reflect, to remember, to proclaim, to fellowship with God. These are open for whenever you are ready to come and partake. And families, maybe this is a great time to talk to your children about receiving Christ in their life, forgiveness of the sins, not just in the general sense, but in the real application personally in their own hearts and lives. Use this as an opportunity to minister to your children. Father, we are thankful for the ways in which you've ministered to us, for the fact that even though we've hurt you, you drew us near and received the wounds we inflicted so that we could be forgiven. We would ask this morning as we partake in these elements that you would do a work in our lives that would change us forever and for always. And we pray this in your name. Amen.